Good evening, good evening, and thank you for joining me for another book reading of Is Christianity the White Man's Religion? How the Bible is Good News for People of Color by author Antipas Harris. And today we will be continuing with chapter six, which is titled The Color of the Bible. So we have a short uh, reading here by Randolph E. Richards and Brandon J. O'Brien. The worlds of both the Old and New Testaments were ethnically diverse and richly textured by an assortment of cultures, languages, and customs. Those who believe the myth that Christianity is the white man's religion also believe that the Bible is the white man's book. At the heart of this claim lies two assumptions. One is that Christianity has been historically used in South Africa, South America, Central America, the Caribbean, and the United States of America to prop up systems of oppression. The other assumption is that Jesus Moses, and the rest of the cast of the Bible were white. Of course, these are not new claims or assumptions. The Bible has been under suspicion in every place people have suffered under the pressure of select Bible verses. In this chapter, I will address the color of the Bible, specifically considering the ruling assumption that most biblical characters had fair skin straight hair, etc. There's an old story given to us by the 20th century writer Franz Kafka that goes something like this. Leopards routinely break into the temple and drink up all the wine in the sacrificial cups. The leopards do this over and over again until finally it becomes part of the ritual. Though simple, Kafka's story offers a parable of how rituals are developed through repetition to the extent that no one questions the corrections or even the implications at play. The marriage between Christianity and whiteness is a lot like Kafka's story. For thousands of years, Western Europeans, Europeans co-mingled their ideas with Christian, Christian rhetoric. Then, in the 19th century, they widely distributed a picture of a white Jesus. Without realizing it, people in diverse cultures started buying into a faith and images of the faith that defied whiteness. Subliminally, the characters in the Bible became white and the prominent images of baby Jesus, Jesus the teacher, and the crucified Christ that were all white were accepted without question. Let's pause and break down some important definitions. When talking about the color of the Bible, it's easy to fall back on terms such as race, ethnicity, or even nationality. But their term, but these terms are tricky to apply to an ancient Near Eastern context. 
our modern categories about race did not exist 2,000 years ago. The meaning of these terms depends on the social situation from which they emerge, which was long after Jesus' death. We must be careful not to read our contemporary categories into ancient settings. As Craig Prentice notes in this book on the formation of race in Christianity, biblical characters lived in an ancient Semitic Mediterranean and North African world, one in which modern understandings of white and black would have been meaningless. On the one hand, we must be careful not to read our modern categories of race back into the Bible too quickly. But on the other hand, the Bible was itself used by slave owners in America to create categories of race, whiteness, and blackness. The use of the Bible to create concepts of blackness and whiteness becomes even more perplexing when one considers that, in fact, very few people in the Bible had white skin. In fact, most of the central figures in the Bible were people of color and were born in different circumstances, including many of the biblical patriarchs and prophets stretching from Abraham to David and, yes, Jesus. Subchapter, People of Color in the Bible. Imagine a little dark-skinned baby born to an unmarried peasant girl named Mary. Impregnated under odd circumstances, Mary had already resisted any potential temptation to terminate her pregnancy. Then shortly after the baby's birth, his poor dark-skinned mom and stepdad were warned to flee as refugees to Egypt because of Herod's threat of infanticide, killing all the infants. Undoubtedly, they were embarrassed, frustrated, and stressed out. But deep down, they knew their baby's purpose was far bigger than his birth conditions. He was worth fighting for. Now, snap back. That image is closer to historical accuracy, with a backdrop of a version of Christianity that has supported hostility against dark-skinned people, teen mothers, and refugees, and often lacks support for the unborn and newborn babies. It is hard to believe that Jesus was a dark-skinned, protected child of an unmarried teenager and a refugee. Additionally, most of the authors of the books of the Bible were people of color. In the New Testament, the author of the Gospel of Mark was a Jew from Syrian, which was located in the modern northeast region of Libya. Most scholars believe that the book of Mark was the first of the gospel writings and that the gospels of Matthew and Luke use Mark as a guide for their outline. This would mean that the author of the first synoptic gospel was an African Jew. Also, although the book of Hebrews does not have an author's signature, many scholars 
believe that Apollos wrote Hebrews. If this is the case, then Hebrews was also written by an African because Apollos was an Egyptian Jew from Alexandria. Subchapter. Ethnic mixing in the Bible. The Bible features members from a kaleidoscope of ethnicities, from Israelites to Cushites, Egyptians to Babylonians, Romans to Jews and North Africans to Greeks. The Bible contains rich ethnic threads with accompanying ideological influences. Most importantly, the Bible not only features an ethnically diverse cast of characters, but also a good chunk of the Hebrew Bible is dedicated to encouraging diversity, ethnic mixing, and border crossing. The Bible tells us repeatedly that the Lord favors those who leave the limits of their ethnic boundaries. In fact, God's initial command to Abraham in Genesis 12 is to go from your country and your kindred. Genesis 12, 1, ESV translation. God is explicit that Abraham not remain with his own people. The first command God gives to the first biblical patriotic actively actively encourages mixing with an ethnically diverse group of people who are not kin to Abraham. Theologian Thomas C. Oden pointed out, cut Africa out of the Bible and Christian ministry memory, excuse me, and you have misplaced many pivotal scenes of salvation history. It is the story of the children of Abraham in Africa, Joseph in Africa, Moses in Africa, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus in Africa, and shortly thereafter, Mark and Perpetua and Athanasius and Augustine in Africa. The importance God places on creating a world with a plurality of ethnicities is never more present than in the book of Ruth. Here, a woman from the kingdom of Moab, today's Jordan, marries a man from the kingdom of Judah, today's Israel. Shortly thereafter, Ruth's husband dies. Ruth then travels to Bethlehem in Judah to work as a field hand for a man named Boaz, another Judean. The two eventually fall in love in a spectacular scene in a threshing floor and then marry. What a remarkable what is remarkable about the book is that it features what is remarkable about the book is that it features not one but two instances of a mixed ethnic marriage where a Moabite woman marries a Judean, Judean man, but the happily ever after does not end there. Ruth and the Moabite woman and Boaz, the Judean, Judean eventually have a son they name Obed. By the book's end, we find out that Obed became the grandfather 
of King David. As it is written in the Gospels, Jesus is a descendant of King David. This means that the Son of God is born of mixed ethnicity. Yes, despite the Bible featuring mostly people of color and the Lord's frequent proclamations to encourage ethnic diversity, many today still imagine biblical Christians as mostly Europeans. The Apostle Paul says, that for the sake of spreading the gospel, he has become all things to all people. If Christianity can be all things to all people, why then is whiteness treated as a universal biblical concept? Subchapter, Early Christians and European Rule. Modern Christian history is associated with the European ruling class, but that has not always been the case. At its inception, Christianity was at odds with the Roman Empire. The late first century and early second century Roman ruling class and political elite were highly suspicious of the faith. They were offended that there were people who refused to worship Roman gods. Even worse, there were Europeans who abandoned their gods to follow the Jewish rabbi named Jesus. There are numerous historical instances in which those among the Roman cultural elite saw Christianity similarly to the way many see it today. As one scholar puts it, they believed that Christianity was a depraved, excessive, contagious, pernicious, new, and mischievous superstition. Religion, to put it bluntly, was what aristocrat Romans did. Superstition was what others did, especially those unseemly types from regions east of Italy. Pliny the Younger, an early 2nd century Roman governor, was so confused with the rise of Christianity in his region that he wrote an emergency dispatch to the Emperor Trajan. He explained that a number of Christians were brought before him. While the initial allegations are unclear, Pliny arbitrarily leveraged charges against Christians for their faith. He challenged them to deny Jesus. Some did and their lives were spared, but others relentlessly held to their faith in Jesus and Pliny executed them. The Roman governor was terrified by their bold Christian faith. He later wrote to the emperor, this positiveness and inflexible obstinacy deserved to be punished. All of Rome grew nervous because the more the Romans persecuted Christians, the more the faith spread. The Romans adopted a don't ask, don't tell policy toward Christians. In his response to the governor, Trajan tells Pliny to punish Christians when their faith becomes apparent, but to refrain from seeking them out for a while. Christianity remained a thorn in the side of the European ruling elite. There were intermittent 
periods of persecution and slaughter of Christians. But in AD 312, everything changed. Constantine became the emperor of Rome. By that time, Rome became a splinter under mounting pressure of state-sanctioned paganism and illegal Christianity. Finally, when Constantine's own mother converted to the faith, the emperor saw the light. Constantine became the first Roman emperor to convert to Christianity. Subchapter, when Europeans became Christians. In 313, Emperor Constantine officially legalized Christianity. By 380, Christianity became the official state religion of the Roman Empire. Over a span of about 300 years, Christianity went from being an outlawed religion to the official religion of the same empire that had crucified Jesus. Christians went from the slaughter pens and torture chambers to ascendance of leadership roles in Rome. For Rome to adopt Christianity as the state religion certainly sent shockwaves through the world. From Africa to Palestine to Rome, Christianity had a profound effect on faith, formation, Roman traditions, and customs. An influential North African bishop named Augustine of Hippo wrote heavily influential works that offered a roadmap from how Christianity should shape the new political and societal frontier in the coming years. Slowly, the distinction diminished between what was culturally Roman and what was Christian. By the 5th century, the Roman Empire collapsed at the hands of a loose collection of pagan Germanic tribes called the Goths. The fall of the Roman Empire gave way to the long period of political instability known as the Middle Ages. There was no longer a Roman emperor, but Christianity remained a dominant political and cultural force throughout Europe. Western and Eastern Europe parted ways and became a collection of warring states with ever-changing borders. Without a strong centralized Roman rulership to bind kingdoms together, Europe experienced a power vacuum. Subchapter, how a dark-skinned faith became white. During the Middle Ages, the church assumed political leadership. Catholic bishops and the Pope become, became local governors and rulers of towns. Bishops became local government officials in charge of administering justice, running the markets, and making treaties with other towns. As Christian leaders took on key political roles in the Middle Ages, Christianity became the vessel of preserving Roman culture. Once the Roman Empire fell to the Goths, Roman traditions were in danger of disappearing. The arts, letters, and culture of Rome, which had flourished only a few hundred years earlier, were in danger of being lost without a centralized power to preserve them. The political culture and religious realms were never entirely separate to begin with, but after the fall of Rome and the rise of Christians as state leaders, the marriage boundaries 
between the three became even more murky. Only 300 years earlier, Roman governors were calling Christianity a superstition. Now, Christianity and Christian politicians were tasked with preserving Roman culture, music, art, and writing in the face of the uncivilized barbarian Goths who had burned down the empire. And it was in this moment, the dawn of the Middle Ages, that Christianity became seen as progressive. It sounds kind of backwards, doesn't it? At this pivotal moment, Christianity defined itself in terms of what is of what it was not. If the pagan Germanic Goths were backwards, uncivilized and barbaric savages, then Christians were refined, civilized and cultured from a superstition formed in a backwater town into the paragon of defense against uncivilized barbarians. Christianity transformed from a backward superstition to a progressive power by using the Goths and, and the sack of Rome as a backdrop for defining itself. European culture and Christianity fused. Christianity took a great leap forward. It may be argued, however, that the fusion of Christianity with Western society produced a religion that veered away from the teachings of Jesus and his disciples. The new religion that emerged kept Christianity as its name, but substituted fidelity to Jesus for Western imperialism. The White Jesus of Hollywood, subchapter. The White Jesus of Hollywood. Moreover, ideological framing of Christianity as a white religion may be traced back as far as the fall of the Roman Empire, but it was remain it has remained in full throttle in North America during the ninth, the nineteenth and twentieth centuries. The history of how heroic characters of the Bible, including Jesus and his apostles, became blonde-haired, blue-eyed white men is long and complex. There is not enough space in this chapter to peel back all the historical layers, but some key historical nuggets are worth covering to support the topic of this chapter. The white Jesus in American Christianity emerged in the early 19th century. There were rising tensions between abolitionists and slaveholders. Each group dug their heels into biblical interpretations that lent authority to their respective political cause. Particularly, slaveholders deployed images of a white Jesus not only as a defense for enslaving people of color, but also as an icon of achievement to which non-white minorities would aspire. To be more like Jesus meant to think, act, and even try to look white. Slaveholders lorded over their slaves, perpetuating the colonization of their minds just as much as oppressing them socio-politically. As the Protestant religious revealed re revival known as the Second Great Awakening swept across America in the 1800s, the production of religious icons grew exponentially. 
White America needed a white Jesus with whom to identify and affirm its supremacy during slavery and later during the Jim Crow era. Historians Edward Blum and Paul Harvey note, whether through tracts, Sunday school cards, or church art, or on television and in movies, visual depiction of Christ lodged the idea of his whiteness deep within cultural conventions and individual psyches. The goal of the picture was to teach Christianity, but an unattended consequence was to create an often unspoken belief that Jesus was white. The widespread portrayal of a white Jesus became a staple in the American religious imagination so much that many black Christians imagined Jesus as white. There was just no way Jesus was a man of color. Anything worth aspiring to, believing in, and worshiping was obviously white. We all know the look, long brown hair, mid-length beard, blue eyes, and pale fair skin. This image of Jesus came from Hollywood in the 1920s, and despite an abundance of historical evidence to the contrary, it has remained part of the Hollywood production of biblical stories well into the 21st century. The question we must ask is, why? The early 1900s represented a significant turning point in American history. Wall Street was breaking records daily and the Great Depression hit not long after. Black people began migrating from the South to the North, starting businesses and black centers of arts, letters and culture in places such as Harlem and Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma and more. The Klan that originated in the late 1800s had been reformed in the South and was terrorizing black people, their families, and their businesses. Least we forget, they did it all in the name of Jesus. Members of the KKK included deacons, so-called Christian leaders, and Bible-toting Christians. They burned crosses as a symbol of their Christian claims. All the while, the tiny agricultural village of Hollywood became an overnight film-making boomtown. In the backlots of MGM and Warner Brothers, directors and producers were hard at work turning biblical stories into movie productions. They cast all-white actors to play Moses, Jesus, God, and most of the rest of the biblical characters. Only antagonists like the Egyptians and marginal supporting characters such as Simon of Syrian or were portrayed as darker-skinned people. Starting in the 1900s, Hollywood gave the world its first movie picture of Jesus in Cecile DeMille's The King of Kings. The opening fades from black into Jesus' white face looking back at, at viewers, the embodiment of a white savior, complete with a halo around his head. When DeMille filmed the crucifixion scenes, he enlisted the help of D.W. Griffith, the producer of Birth of a Nation, which is a film her heroically detailed the Ku Klux Klan. 
Upon the film's release, it was positively reviewed as being similar in style to Griffith's Birth of a Nation, not least of all because the film's heroes were all white. Though some called The King of Kings the most important picture ever made, others deplored it for its lack of authentic-looking Jesus. Jesus, one reviewer noted, was not white enough. For some, the image of Jesus in the movie needed to be white with blonde hair and blue eyes. Subchapter, Jesus in the Books Around the same time as the release of The King of Kings, author Upton Sinclair wrote a short book called They Call Me Carpenter, a tale of the second coming. In the story, a young man named Billy cruises around Hollywood and decides to see a movie. At the theater, he is attacked by an angry mob and forced to seek shelter inside of a church. Once inside, he sees a stained glass window. You know, of course, the sort of figures they have in those windows. A man in long robes, white with purple and gold, with a brown beard and a gentle, sad face, and a halo of light about the head. Then suddenly the figure walks out of the window, Jesus or Carpenter, as he liked to be called, is ready to hit the town with Billy. In order to make sure none of the church folk notice he is missing, Jesus grabs a portrait of a white bank manager to hang in his place, thinking no one would notice the difference. Immediately afterwards, Jesus gets swept up into the movie Business as a Pushy Filmmaker, becomes obsessed with his face and wants desperately to put him into a propaganda film for the churches. In the filmmaker's dismay, Jesus turns him down to heal the sick and feed the hungry around Los Angeles, a practice that does not sit too well with his aristocracy or who quickly commission a mob to lynch Jesus. Billy, distraught by the thought of losing his friend, remembers seeing Birth of a Nation and hires his own mob to defend Jesus. In the story, Billy hires all the extras from D.W. Griffith's film to dress in the KKK's robes and rally around Jesus to protect him. While Billy's plan works, Jesus has had enough and exclaims, Let me go back where I was, where I do not see, where I do not hear, where I do not think. Let me go back to the church. Jesus rushes back to the window that he walked out of and disappears. Subchapter, Pushback and Consequence. Several things are remarkable about Upton Sinclair's fiction. As early as 1922, it was quite it was quite ambiguous in the United States for Jesus to be found as a white icon. He had been so enculturated into white America's social and political agenda that a mob of Klansmen agreed to defend him from an entirely different angry mob. In the story, the Klansmen are on Jesus' side. 
This imaginary is a social painting of the clansmen as good guys and implies theologically that Jesus supports the KKK's agenda. Also, Jesus replaces his own portrait with that of a white banker. Notice that the two of them look identical. A deeper social critical analysis reveals that during the horror of the Jim Crow era, as the KKK attacked, beat, drowned, and hung people of color left and right and hated the Jews, Sinclair's short story shows that a large number of Christians consented to these acts as if it were what God wanted. While Sinclair's novel is fiction, the religious art of a white Jesus is not something merely fictional. It was common in American churches and, yes, in many black churches, too. Although there were pervasive hostility against people of color, there arose significant pushback from Native American and black communities. They fought against the idea that the white supremacist agenda was God's agenda and that biblical heroes were all white. In fact, the uncritical assimilation to the image of a white Jesus being posted in many black churches infuriated a few radical black leaders, such as Elijah Muhammad of the Nation of Islam and F.S. Cherry also known as Prophet Cherry, who launched a campaign against images of a white biblical figures during the same time Sinclair wrote his story. Prophet Cherry, founder of the Church of the Living God and key creator of the Black Israelites movement, was convinced that because the majority of the people in the Bible were from an Afro-ascetic context, God and biblical figures such as Adam, Eve, and Jesus were physically black. Cherry made it his goal to strip churches of their white art. While preaching in a black church, he once pointed to a portrait of a white Jesus and said, I'll give anybody $1,000 tomorrow night who can tell me who the hell that is. The white Bible of the 1920s and 1930s had lasting and damaging psychological consequences for young African Americans. Blum and Harvey reported a study from then head of Howard University's sociology department, E. Franklin Frazier, that highlights the magnacy of benefits that the Bible is composed of only white people. Frazier conducted a study asking numerous young Amer African Americans, is God a white man? Their answers were startling. One 21-year-old responded, I never heard of him being a Negro, so he must have been a white man. People would think you were crazy if you told them he was a Negro, especially white people. Another 19-year-old added, Negro or white, by the time white people got through, they made him white too. And finally, a college freshman remarked, All the pictures I've seen, he was a white man. If by any chance he was anything else, the white people have taken great pains to make him a white man throughout these many, many years. <laughs>
Indeed, Hollywood did and has continued over the past 20 years to portray biblical characters as white, despite overwhelming hysterical, historical evidence that Jesus probably had dark olive skin. By 2005, there were six big-budget Hollywood films about Jesus, all featuring a white Jesus and friends. And with the foreign markets accounting for over 60% of Hollywood's box office, white Jesus reached a lot of non-white Christians. Even well into 2019, Hollywood continued to produce images of a Caucasian Bible. Most notably, these productions included the history of channels, Jesus, his life, and Darren Aronfusky's Noah, each featuring a historical fair-skinned leads for Jesus and Noah, respectively. Hollywood's project of bringing a white Bible to the big screen highlights the hold that a white Christian imagination has on America's idea of the color of the Bible. While Sinclair's short story details the absurdity of an Aryan Jesus, Fraser's study nonetheless shows how deeply entrenched it is in the minds of young African Americans. The early fusion between European culture and Christianity paired with the influence from Hollywood thoroughly established that everyone from the Hebrew Bible to the New Testament was white. Despite early vocal critics over the abundant display of white biblical figures in books, movies, and churches, the historical inaccuracy of a white Bible has proved remarkably difficult to overturn. Living it out as we close this chapter. Race as we know it today did not exist in biblical times. The way history has contorted biblical characters to support European imperialistic agendas is a social construct. The reimage of the original diversity in scripture and Christianity, we must first problematize this social manufactured concept of race. It has far too long imposed itself upon biblical history and the origins of the faith. Secondly, the Bible is chock full of ethnic and cultural diversity. An excavation of biblical history reveals that from Genesis to Revelation, God has affirmed people from the kaleidoscope of national, cultural, and social locations. History also confirms that Christianity was born out of the context of marginalized, of marginalized descendants of Abraham in first century Palestine with a clear mission of drawing all of humanity onto equal footing as God's people. Christians must renew their commitment to God's agenda and abandon distorted images and claims on a rational on a racialized faith. Racialization runs interference with God's global agenda of love. Social stratification of any kind is an insult of God's creative genius. That wraps up 
chapter 6. Thank you again for joining me for Is Christianity the White Man's Religion?